One of my favorite poets is a woman named Emily Dickinson, and she lived in, around Massachusetts in a place called Amherst, where uh, part of the year Steve and I teach when we're there for the three-month course. And one of my favorite lines of her poetry is, Futile the winds to a heart in port. Futile the winds to a heart in port. And I love the image this gives because it reminds me about equanimity, which I'd like to speak about tonight. Because in our lives, we have many winds that blow, pleasant and unpleasant, uh, graceful and terrorizing. And indeed, as we sit here, we feel the intensity of it much, much more in a way because the armor of our lives in, in this kind of atmosphere begins to shed. We begin to shed the armor. And we feel it with much more clarity, much more intensity. So how can we have this kind of heart in port where the winds of life that blow don't drown us in the beautiful sea of our life or don't affect us so much. As we sit here quietly with our practice, opening to seeing as clearly as we can every moment, it brings a kind of gentle clarity to our experience of life. We give ourselves this precious time to be able to do that, that in life we can't because of the many responsibilities and just the ordinary distractions of life. But here we can accept and recognize with a very sobering kind of honesty the truth of our vulnerability in life, the truth of just how things are. You know, something pleasant happens and we're running after it. Something unpleasant happens and we're running away from it. And it's painful to subject ourselves to seeing this, but we do because ultimately we learn that we love ourselves more deeply than we know. And that's why we keep doing this. We keep opening. We begin to see in the moments of maybe sweet tranquility that those moments can dissolve into pain in the body, into restlessness, into heartache, into sadness, and in ang into anger. That we don't have a very, a feeling of a very stable heart in port. And when we're not living in our thoughts, when we don't live in the cocoon that we create of thoughts and our planning mind and our reliving the past, when we're just surrendering to the vulnerability of this is the way it is in this moment, and then this moment, and then that moment, 
and letting it be as it changes, there's a seed of tremendous strength hidden in our ability to feel vulnerable. There is a seed of tremendous strength hidden in suffering. There's a seed of tremendous strength hidden in pain. If we let ourselves get through the layers to discover that. In a way, we can look at that pain as a big message to us, as a big sign to us, or a siren when it gets that loud, saying to us to shed the armor that we've had that no longer serves us, to shed the old ways that maybe have served us in the past but are not serving us anymore, and to develop and cultivate that kind of protection or armor that's wise, those strengths that allow us to live our lives in a radically different way than we've been living. So here we're allowing ourselves to open and to live wisely, more wisely, by just beginning to feel how difficult it is to feel our emotions, whether painful or pleasurable, how to feel the pain in our body or the pleasure in our body, the lightness, the tranquility, to open to all of that without grasping or fixating on what is pleasurable or without closing down or hating what's unpleasurable but just to open with kindness, with wise attention to all of it, not just closing down and directing our minds to what is, what we like, what's pleasant, what's pleasurable, but opening to everything. And this practice of vipassana is all about that. It's all about opening, accepting, discovering what's there, and letting go. So that when we do this, our hearts and our minds can be big and spacious and able to contain all of life and to know all of life. Because if we don't, if we don't know all of life, then we won't know what to do with it. When it comes, we won't know how to act wisely in the world with clear intention and not like an automaton, using just our habitual tendencies to fall back on. The Buddha taught these four divine emotions or attitudes or uh, divine abodes that we can abide in as a way to live as a way to respond to life, to be with the ups and downs of life, to be with the pain and pleasure of life. And equanimity is the divine emotion or attitude that allows us to open to all of it, 
to open to what's painful and to open to what's pleasurable and to hold both almost at the same time. It allows us to move deeply into the mystery of life. We really can't open to the mystery of life if we're just, you know, trying to go towards a direction that's easy all the time. Because the mystery, allowing to open to our moment-to-moment experience, which is the mystery of life, isn't always easy. And the path for each one of us is different and will bring us to different terrain, different intensities, different spaces of time. But it's the terrain that we must go through. And none of us on human be- as human beings is going to have just a pleasant terrain. It's going to also be painful. So how do we open to both? It's said that equanimity is the king or the queen of all of the Brahma-viharas. Because when we've tried everything else, when we've tried opening to pain with compassion, when we've tried opening to joy with sympathetic joy, when we've tried just being loving and kind, the basic metta, and none of that works, then we can fall back on the practice of equanimity, just letting things be as they are, whether they be confused or whether we feel as a failure or uh, we don't know what to do. One way I look at equanimity being the queen or king is that equanimity is very benevolent. It gives a lot, and it holds a lot, and it doesn't hold back. And it sees things as um, equal in a way. It doesn't hold things above or below, or even not attached to things being equal or the same, but just allows it to be as it is in the moment. So it gives us this ability to embrace all of life, not just what we prefer, but how it is. And it allows us this kind of intimacy with life that doesn't annihilate the differences. So we can accept whatever side of life is being presented to us in the moment without putting down the other side of life or saying that, the other side is wrong or blocking it out somehow. It opens us to the mystery of life, to every moment being new and being ready to accept the newness of that moment and to let the paradoxes be. So it's being in life benevolently mercifully. There's a saying by Shakespeare in The Merchant of Venice where Portia said, the quality of mercy is not strained. It falls like a gentle rain from heaven onto earth below. And this is kind of the quality of equanimity, 
that it falls on everything. It touches everything quite intimately. It's said that all of the other Brahma-viharas are deepened by equanimity. Because of equanimity, metta can be cultivated to its immeasurable impartiality so that metta can be felt for a benefactor or for oneself, a neutral person, a dear friend, a difficult person, that we can feel the same quality of metta for each one of them, not feeling any different. And it truly happens in metta practice. One feels that, that one can pervade metta to all beings and not feel partial or, perf- or preferential to any one area in the moments where metta is really, really pure. It's not that way all the time, of course, but it can be felt in that way. It's said that with equanimity, clear, compassionate action can be offered without any attachment to result, so that we can act with compassion, we can move forth when there is a difficult situation, and the it's the energy of equanimity that allows the heart to act with compassion without any attachment to the result, without any aversion to what's going on. Just a very clear action. And it's also said that the happiness of sympathetic joy can be expressed without comparing, without judging, without any of the hindrances that may come in the way to block a very pure joy towards someone or with someone who is experiencing joy. So equanimity is a balanced, spacious stillness with clarity that's very connected to every moment, situation, condition, person. Sometimes there is this wrong understanding that equanimity is kind of this dry and very um, indifferent attitude towards what's going on. But it's much, much the opposite of that. It's very connected feeling really what's happening deeply, but there is a balance there, a spaciousness, a stillness, a clarity. I'd like to particularly hone in on tonight how equanimity is the doorway to freedom, how it is the cause for wisdom to arise, and how also it is the result of wisdom. So how it is the cause of wisdom, how it is the result of wisdom. So in describing equanimity further, 
It's described as this ability to hold both the unpleasant and the pleasant experience almost simultaneously and not to incline to any extreme. And sometimes this happens in our practice uh, when there can be a moment of feeling okay about something or about our sitting practice, and then all of a sudden there'll be a moment of feeling totally fearful, totally unable to go on, and having some confusion there about what to do. When equanimity is present, it opens the mind a lot. It opens our ability to experience and can hold both the pleasant and the unpleasant without confusion. Sometimes equanimity is obscured by these changing and some seeming opposite uh, objects. But when uh, it's strong, when equanimity is very strong, uh, the changing objects do not obscure the experience of equanimity. The experience rests in equanimity, in the steadiness of it, rather than be caught in the changing objects. The characteristic of equanimity is to rest the mind before it falls into extremes. It has this quality of, it says in the texts in the Abhidhamma, when there is a lack, it fills the lack. Say if there's a lack of energy, it puts more energy there. And where there is too much, it uh, takes away. Where there's too much energy, for example, it lessens the energy. And it does this in a very uh, uh, kind of natural way. It said that all of the other Brahma-viharas are really included or can be included within equanimity. And there is the addition of balance. So what equanimity has uh, that the others don't have in, in and of itself is balance. So equanimity is, is the one quality of our practice that helps us to stay on the middle path not falling to extremes. So this middle path that we walk on is not a tight, rigid, precarious kind of, uh, you know, rope that we, we walk on. It's not this feeling of a very precarious balance that makes us feel that we have to shut down, that we have to be very rigid and tight to keep us on this very narrow line. On the contrary, it's a very big feeling to be in equanimity. It's a very wide feeling of being on the path. It gives us that kind of balance, not a tight, precarious balance, 
but a balance as though we're, we have lots of room on either side um, to, to catch ourselves, to balance, to, be, uh, to walk in life without feeling rigid. Sometimes equanimity is erroneously interpreti- interpreted as dry and sterile, that kind of state of mind that's uh, uh, feeling detached from the world or from what's going on. Because when there is equanimity in one's experience, we're not expressing anything dramatic. There's no dramatic reaction to anything at all. And it's really different for us to get used to that kind of state, that kind of being in the world, because in our lives we get used to so much drama. When nothing is going on around us, it's pretty weird, you know, because we've got so much drama in our lives. Everything that interests us or that is made to interest us in movies and magazines and the news, um, just in conversation, is about drama. You know, we have to have some kind of exciting story to be, um, to tell, or to see in the movies, or to uh, read about, in order for it to keep our interest and to keep us connected. But equanimity is not like that at all, of course. There's not a feeling of drama although there's this a feeling of connection. We get um, what in, in the States, in the United States, we have this term that about being experience junkies. You know, that we've got to have some big experience all the time to feel alive. Now, there's so many different, even spiritual, workshops and things we go to to get a new experience. But equanimity isn't that at all, having that kind of drama or experience. At times it feels there's really nothing going on. But that nothing going on is not anything but there's no reactivity to what's going on. We don't feel our mind reacting to what was just in the present moment with aversion or attachment. And the mind feels much steadier. There's a lot more equipoise. And it takes a, a deepening in our practice to really appreciate that, to appreciate the wisdom and beauty of that. There's a richness about it that we can't discover unless we allow ourselves to sink a little more deeply into it. So it has the warmth and love of all the other three Brahma-viharas, plus balance, because it's not hooked by extremes. And we're able to observe both extremes without getting lost in them.
not being repelled by the unpleasant, not being seduced by the pleasant. In practice, and in uh, the text, it's often likened to a mountain, equanimity, likened to a mountain, because it remains unshaken in the face of all conditions. And if we consider a mountain, you know, there must be some beautiful mountains around here that you, uh, you know, knowing your country. And um, we happen to live on one, Haleakala. It's 10,000 feet, just kind of gradually going up, but a very imposing mountain. And Steve and I live on about the 1,800-foot level of it. So we still live quite at the bottom uh, um, slopes of it. And when we look up on the mountain, there's still, you know, about 8,000 feet we can see above us. And a lot of times, uh, it is quite a metaphor for me of equanimity, looking up at Haleakala and different times of the day, even even within a span of an hour, a lot of things can happen. You know, there's uh, rain and uh, there's snow. About every seven years we have snow on the mountain. And once in a while we have very heavy thunder and lightning storms and you see the lightning hitting the side of the mountain. Sometimes it's just covered with um, with a veil of white clouds, and sometimes it's very clear, and the sun is beating very harshly on it. And it just remains unshaken, very steady, unmovable, but feeling everything, experiencing it all. There can be this very clear comprehension to what's happening in our practice, whether it's any kind of adversity or any kind of seduction, and yet we can remain like a mountain, clear, unshaken, in the face of all conditions. When we're able to do this, when we're able to open to all the conditions of life, we're able to sink more deeply, to understand more profoundly the deeper laws of who we are, what life is all about, what is the nature of being human, of self, and we begin to understand in a profound way impermanence when we allow ourselves to open with equanimity to all that happens to us in our practice. There's um, one of the poems in Rilke's Book of Hours, Let everything happen to you beauty and terror. Just keep going. No feeling is final. 
no feeling is final. And I think that is very applicable to our practice, not necessarily to our lives, you know, that wouldn't be applicable, but in terms of our practice, let everything happen to you, beauty and terror, just keep going, no feeling is final. Just letting what comes come, letting it change as it does, letting it go as it goes. And in this way, we sink more deeply into who we really are, what this life is truly about, into deeper wisdom. The teachers that I've had have been models for this just in their way of responding, of holding my own practice and the practice of others. And in the face of a lot of suffering, always I've been able to feel their deep compassion, even though they haven't been necessarily showy about it, dramatic about it. Um, There's not never much drama around it. It's just their ability to hold and to accept everything that I've gone through and, and will continue to go through in the practice with equipoise, with peace. That's helped me much more than their words, in a way, that's kept me steady on the path, unshaken. I remember a time when... Um, when there was a lot of um, deep stillness in my practice and long periods of sitting. um, Experiencing a kind of um, subtleness of body and mind that never was experienced before. And they're developed because of that and because of uh, not knowing that terrain so well, a very subtle attachment to it, very subtle. And it's hard, it's it's really hard. You need a teacher to see you through this terrain sometimes because there is a a very hidden, masked attachment that can be to pleasant states in practice. We don't even know we have it. And it takes a very wise teacher to call us on it, to continually ask, are we attached to that, you know, and, and to keep letting go. And once when I was going through this with Manindra, and he kept pointing out, you know, uh, do you sense any attachment to these these states? Do you like these states? And I said, oh, no, no, I understand. I know the way, you know, I'm not attached at all. 
But there was, there was a lot of attachment. And so I just, I went through that phase, just through that phase, and really um, kind of stayed in a parking lot for a long, long time. Dharma parking lot, you know, of bliss for a long time. And when I asked Manindra, you know, went to him, and, and there was a little bit of disappointment after a particular retreat. And, uh, you know, kind of a letdown. And Manindra simply said, when the fruit is ripe, it will fall from the tree. Just like that. No drama around it. No, um, uh, he didn't reprimand me in any way. Just, this is how it is. This is how it is. This is your karma unfolding. Just remembering that the way in which Manindra held that has been a model for me. You know, just holding attachment in that way, being very clear to point it out, but not getting upset one way or another. This is just the way it is right now. And eventually that time passed, and with a lot of... Um, uh, prodding and a lot of um, Upandita subsequently uh, shaming me, I finally got out of the parking lot. <laughs> so then I remember a time also about a lot of aversion coming up in the form of fear in my practice. And it was a time in practice subsequent to that time, which was very early on, uh, a time of a lot of bliss. But subsequent to that, um, there was a time when a lot of fear arose because it seemed as though the practice was entering a terrain that had never been experienced before. And it was going there really, really fast. And it was a time when, um, I'll just describe it briefly, but it may not mean very much, when I, when I would go to an experience, or mindfulness would go to an experience, and as soon as it would go there, it would disappear. And it didn't feel like I could land on anything. Um, there was no me to land, and there was nothing to land on, and it was just just kind of falling off all the time, falling off. And everything felt kind of uh, empty and invisible in a way, and uh, disappearing really quickly. And I went to Upandita at that time, and uh, I was explaining what happened in a lot of fear. I was actually on the ground, kind of crumpled up, folded up on the ground, telling him I can't go on anymore. And um, it was a, a kind of a nata realization in a, in, for me in a very big way. And um, he didn't say much. You know, the way he just held it, he just let that experience happen. Just let it happen. 
And when I was finished telling him about it, I thought I was going to get some big advice or something. And I, uh, he said something like, when I was kind of crying, he said something like, please be mindful in English. And so then I, I just picked myself up and I knelt down again and continued uh, reporting. And then I finished the report and he said, please continue. And I thought, oh, how can I continue? But it was the way he held it, the kind of um, equanimity, that deep stability he had, and that deep ability to see suffering and the end of suffering, which is what equanimity, the paradox that equanimity allows us to hold, is to see suffering and the end of suffering, to see all of the Four Noble Truths in one moment of experience. The one thing I appreciate very deeply about my teachers and why I allow them to um, give me that benevolent sword of compassion when they need to reprimand me or call me on a place where I'm not seeing clearly is because they are the only people in my life that know for me, my teachers, that I can totally purify this heart and mind. And they have total trust in that for me. They, they know it without a doubt. And you want to be around these people. If anybody represents that for you, if anybody sees suffering and the end of suffering for you, then those are the people to listen to. And so these teachers for me, Upandita and Manindra and other teachers, Steve is a teacher to me in that too, very steady, like a ground, very grounded mountain I remember um, reading somewhere where Achan Cha, he's a teacher of Jack Cornfield and um, the teacher of uh, Achan Sumedho. He said, don't be afraid to let your students suffer. <laughs> and I know um, it's hard for, for me to do this, being uh, a guide in, on this path, a teacher on this path. But sometimes when people are suffering, you just have to let them go through it because this is the way that equanimity is developed by letting everyone find their own ability to be with suffering and all that comes with it, all that creates it, attachment, aversion, delusion, So especially in intensive practice, we open to new terrain of our minds and hearts. And if we don't develop equanimity, we can't go there. We'll get to that place and we'll back up. We'll keep getting there and we'll back up. 
we'll go we'll keep going back to where we were before and just going kind of in circles on and you know samsara that's what samsara is all about <laughs> you keep going over the same old ground over and over and over again chasing after pleasure avoiding pain but equanimity allows us to go beyond that into new terrain it gives us the strength to do that because of its balance because of its bigness its spaciousness without equanimity we can't pass through the terrain that is necessary for us to pass through to open to wisdom and for each one of us that terrain is different but in a way it's not different for each one of us because that terrain includes different forms of greed, hatred and delusion and we can't we're not going to avoid it as much as we want to as much as we think we can take any kind of fast track i see that you will always have to go back and you have to go through it in order to get to real wisdom because it takes that opening to everything to really open to wisdom we come to see that the old ways don't work anymore when we keep getting to the edge and using the old you know patterned responses that we need something new we need a new tool we need a new protection we need a new perspective and that perspective is equanimity that opens us that allows us to let go of everything it allows us to let go because we don't have any choice because if we don't let go we get what is called in the uh, vernacular rope burn when you're holding on so tightly to how things are or to how you want them to be or how you think they should be because that's the way they were in the past or that's the way somebody said they should be if you're holding on to anything you'll hurt you'll get hurt you'll get rope burn you can imagine how that feels holding on so tightly to something and somebody just pulling the rope of life the the threads of life through you can't do it any other way you have to let go and you have to let go because it's going because that's the way it is it's moving and it's changing and it's coming and it's going moment by moment by moment if we don't let go we suffer so it requires a new way of being with our moment to moment experience one in which just observing just letting go functions in a way that it can that it never did before that function then the observing power of mindfulness which has as one of its characteristics letting go 
that function takes precedence over the reactive functions. If we take time in that quickness of letting go, of how things are, of seeing the impermanence of life moment to moment, if we take even a moment to regret, even a moment to expect, we sort of close down, we block our path, we slow down the process. So I remember Manindra saying to me at a particular time in practice when things were going really, really fast, just really, really fast, some moments, him saying, let go, 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 just let go. And that was all the instruction was, just let go. This is from one of the books uh, that Carlos Castaneda wrote. Remember those grouping of books he wrote about his teacher, Don Juan? And this is about um, opening to infinity without flinching. It's about having that steadiness, that openness of equanimity. opening to the mystery. Sorcerers understand discipline as a capacity to face with serenity odds that are not included in our expectations. For them, discipline is a volitional act that enables them to take anything, anything that comes their way without regrets or expectations. For sorcerers, discipline is an art the art of facing infinity without flinching, not because they are filled with toughness, but because they are filled with awe. Discipline is the art of feeling awe. So we can get on that edge where we see we're in this stillness and in this bigness and spaciousness and balance. We can see the infinity of impermanence going, coming and going and coming and going. And we can see the mystery of life unfolding and unfolding and unfolding before us. And instead of being fearful with equanimity, we don't have to close down. We stay open in a kind of awe that allows us to see it with interest, with each moment being new, with the process being new. If we can't see each moment clearly because it's going too quickly, we can see the whole process, the whole terrain of that process as new in itself. And we can be with it in a very different way. Instead of fearfully, we can be with it in a way that says, I accept the mystery of life and to see it with a kind of reverence and awe and honor and respect. So it opens a doorway, this equanimity, 
to profound experience, to a spirit, an experience of impermanence that is beyond what we can possibly even imagine. We couldn't imagine the kind of experience of Anicca that I can't talk about it in a way that can lead you to know what that experience is. It's just that you need this tool of equanimity to be there for that experience. That experience of opening to that profound anicca is what leads to liberating wisdom and to the transcendent peace of Nibbana. It is said that equanimity is the doorway to peace. You know, the chant that Steve chants every night, the Anicca Vata Sankara, all conditioned things are arising and passing away. Understanding this deeply brings the greatest happiness, which is peace. So it is the cause Equanimity is the cause for wisdom to arise. And it can also be the fruit of that depth of wisdom. One who has experienced deeply equanimity, uh, that kind of liberating wisdom, one who has even touched upon, even no matter how briefly, open to the... um, Nibbana has the fruit, knows the fruit. That fruit of equanimity is expressed in their life. Where we learn how to be in harmony with the transience of the world instead of succumbing to its oppressiveness. Where one can talk about and one can understand dukkha in a revolutionary way not in a way where we feel oppressed by it, but in a way where we see that understanding it deeply brings great wisdom. And we not only see dukkha, but we see the end of dukkha, the end of suffering. We not only just, you know, kind of uh, we're not stuck on the first noble truth. We see that there is a cause and there is an end. And it's the whole Four Noble Truths that in one moment can be revealed to us. So equanimity helps us to get beyond that oppressiveness of dukkha, of suffering, and gives us in life this ability to embrace all of life the 10,000 joys, the 10,000 sorrows of life, as they say, allows us to be in the whiplash of life. There is talked about a lot, these eight vicissitudes of life, that equanimity allows us to be within, to go through with much more grace and surrender than ever before. The eight vicissitudes are gain and loss, pain and pleasure, uh, praise and blame, 
fame and disrepute. And we can take any situation in our life and almost categorize it. Um, so we come to accept that there are cycles of the day, cycles of our life, cycles of motherhood, fatherhood, being young, being middle-aged, being old, and we begin to accept it more practically, not because we're just bearing down and uh, giving up on ourselves, but because we're not fighting the laws of impermanence anymore, the seasons of change, the way it is in life very simple ways that we just, you know, stop torturing ourselves by fighting the way it is. Two examples of this in daily life are a very simple one. I have four children, and uh, many of you have children, I know, and so there's lots of stuff that you go through with kids. And one of the things that I went through with my children is um, washing the dishes. I have, I used to have this big thing, I was really tight around, that I wanted at least the sink to be cleaned up at night. Even if the rest of the house was a total mess, please clean up the dishes, put them away, you know, so the cockroaches won't come. And so with four kids, and not only four kids, each child usually had another one over, you know, and I, I never, there were kids laying around all over the place all the time. They all looked alike. I, I didn't know which one was mine sometimes, you know. <laughs> um, so I would just get really uptight about this. And one time, one of my kids said to me, just straight, Mom, wake up and smell the coffee. There's always going to be dishes in the sink. There's all these kids around. You'll never have the sink completely cleaned every single night. You'll never have it that way, Mom. Not every single night. I was, you know, I was furious to hear this kind of like, one of my kids doing this to me. But, you know, she was right. And I just gave up. And all the grief I had around trying to keep that sink clean every single night just went away. I just, this is the way it is. And so I just got used to the cockroaches coming. I used to put honey out for the cockroaches. I just gave up, because one time, too, Manindra said to me, you don't live in this world alone. Other creatures live with you, too. And so I thought, that's true. Okay, so I'll feed the cockroaches. <laughs> that was one episode. I mean, I've had many different ways of facing cockroaches, but it's the way it is. It's just the way it is. And recently, I had a really poignant um, surrender to how it is.
when I was teaching the August course that we teach a one-month course in Maui, Steve and I, um, it was a good thing that I was sitting a lot all the time. And one of my dear friends, uh, her daughter called me and said that uh, my mom's dying. And this lady, my dear friend Priscilla, is just a, about a day younger than me. We, our birthdays are close together. And I knew for a couple of years that she had had breast cancer and she was kind of um, slowly going. But until two months ago, she was still pretty robust. You know, I'd see her here and there. And of course, it never really sunk in. You know, I would see her and be with her once in a while, and um, there was still that hope that I attached to that she'll overcome this. It was very hard to um, accept it any other way, really, when I look back in reflection. And so the time came, and um, I went down, took time out from the retreat, and went down to see her. And she, she always taught me a lot in life. She, she was a mother herself of two girls. She was a single parent for a very long time. She helped in the community, helping homeless uh, kids and also helping battered women. And she's a very good, good woman and had a lot of hardship in life, too. And so I went to visit her when um, it was really her last hours, and it was such a gift to me to be with her during this time. So I went to visit her. And um, where I went to visit her, it w it's the h hotter part of the of Maui. It was, it's near the beach. And so it was warm. And they had her laying on the bed without any clothes on at all. She was at home, and they tried to keep her at home during these last hours. So here she was laying on the bed and no clothes on. And um, She was suffering a lot. She was breathing really hard. And her eyes were kind of glazed over. And I came near her. And um, she was making noises of pain. But you really never know exactly what one is feeling, I know. But the noises were of pain, groans. And I, I went close to her. And uh, I just talked about how good she was to help her reflect on her goodness. And, um, and then said some things like, uh, wherever you're going will be love. And, and that's where, you, where we'll be with you in our love. And she, I knew she could hear me because she had tears then. And I was surprised that 
I felt pretty steady, but I felt really connected to her at the time, to the love that we shared as being mothers. We shared a lot about motherhood, and um, it was great. She was like that with me. And as then as I saw her on her bed, her body had aged, of course. She... Um, she had taken a lot in life, so her body was looked much more aged than uh, than my body, actually. And I could see it all there, age, um, old age, sickness, death. It was like three heavenly messengers right before me. And it was so, so powerful for me to see that. Um, not only that, she was on uh, her bed was against the wall, and on her wall were pictures of when she was a, a child, like one year old, on her mother with her mother and father, and then when she was in grade school, and then a teenager, and then a young mother, and so beautiful, and with her children, in a time when uh, I was at an event with her and a picture was taken. And her whole life was like that. And it was just like seeing her here now and then seeing all of her life and times I knew that were joyful and, this, and times I knew, you know, that were very poignant. And it was so full. And if I, if, my heart weren't big, I couldn't contain it. I just couldn't contain it, but my heart felt very big at that moment. It doesn't always, but it did then. And it was really such a beautiful teaching to me that she gave. So we, we remained together, uh, and the women, there were just her mother and her children, her two girls, and some two close friends and myself, and we, she went through that time, and I'm, I still feel like I'm integrating it. It's not completely integrated yet, but the whole cycle of life in just seeing that was so deep for me, and if not for my practice, it, it just could have fallen apart. The, the, the girls were all, um, they had accepted to some degree what was happening. Um, and there was grief, too. But seeing that whole cycle was really beautiful. And so I, I left, and uh, the next morning at 5.30 they called and said that she had passed away in the night, and would I come down? And so I went down. And she looked so peaceful, really. You know, it was to see that ending. And we, we dressed her. Um, we, we put perf um, perfumes from India on her. She loved India. And... Um, her teacher was from India, so we, we rubbed her with perfumes, 
and we put flowers on her and we dressed her up in a sari because uh, she had a favorite sari. And then we picked uh, plumeria leaves from the outside and we put them over her. And, um, and then I, I asked if we could have a little ritual of, with her of talking about her goodness, of remembering her goodness. So we each said a little something about her goodness. And she was, she was, she was gone, but she was still warm. And the nurse said, oh, she's still here. So maybe she hears you somehow. If it weren't for equanimity, I don't think I could have gone through it in that way. This is a favorite poem from May Sarton. If I can let you go as trees let go, their leaves so casually one by one, if I can come to know what they do know, that fall is the release, the consummation, then fear of time and the uncertain fruit would not distemper the great lucid skies. If I can take the dark with open eyes and call it seasonal, not harsh or strange, and tree-like stand unmoved before the change, lose what I lose to keep what I can keep, the strong roots still alive under the snow. Love will endure if I can let you go. So this kind of equanimity, this kind of sense of openness, stillness, balance that we can uh, cultivate in our practice gets cultivated through accepting our moment-to-moment -moment experience just as it is. It's not like calling forth equanimity from some place in the sky or some uh, heavenly being, the way that equanimity comes to us is by being with our moment-to-moment -moment experience. And this is not being a doormat to circumstances. It's a sense of being at ease with all the conditions of our life. And that's that, you know, that last line, may I be at ease with all the conditions of my life. There's a poise, there's a decisiveness, there's a clarity, there's a buoyancy, there's a pliancy to equanimity. It's not at all dry and disconnected. It opens us to wisdom. It's the cause for wisdom to arise, and it's the fruit of that wisdom also. So I'd like to end with this um, poem by William Stafford from a new collection of his writings called The Way It Is. This was collected after he died. 
And this is this uh, poem is called The Gift. Time wants to show you a different country. It's the one your life conceals, the one waiting outside when curtains are drawn, the one grandmother hinted at in her crochet design, the one almost found over the edge of the music after the sermon. It's the way life is, and you have it a few years given. You get killed now and then, violated in various ways, and sometimes it's turnabout. You get tired of that, though, long-suffering. You wait and pray, and maybe good things come. Maybe the hurt slackens, and you hardly feel it anymore. You have a breath without pain, and it's called happiness. It's a balance, the taking and passing along, the composting of where you've been and how people and weather treated you. It's a country where you already are, bringing where you have been. Time offers this gift in its millions of ways, turning the world, moving the air, calling every morning. Here, take it. It's yours. So let's sit for a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.